It's Independence Day and you're dispatched to a fireworks-related injury. You arrive to find a 46-year-old man surrounded by his friends with his arm in a cooler full of beers and ice. He's moaning in pain, and one of his buddies tells you that he was lighting a sparkler when his sleeve caught fire. You're listening to 911Cast, the no-nonsense EMS podcast. This episode is brought to you by One Kit First Aid Kits. Check out their high-quality first aid and first responder kits at buyonekit.com. That's B-U-Y-O-N-E kit.com. I'm Scott Topiel, and this week, it's all about burns. There are over a million burn injuries each year in the United States, and they happen surprisingly fast. In fact, contact at a temperature of 140 degrees Fahrenheit for as little as three seconds can result in a significant burn. Increase the temperature to 156 degrees, and serious burns can happen in just one second. If you were to ask me for the single most important priority in treating a burn patient, if there was just one thing to take away from this episode, it would have to be protect the airway. While burn injuries can be extensive and look horrific, the leading cause of death from burns is inhalation injury. In fact, some degree of airway damage occurs in two-thirds of large burns, those affecting more than 70% of the body's surface area. Upper airway swelling and laryngeal edema caused by burns can lead to rapid airway compromise. Once the airway swells, it'll be virtually impossible to intubate. As always, consult your local policies and medical direction. But a general approach to preventing airway complications is to start by administering 100% humidified oxygen via a non-rebreather mask to all victims of significant burns, even if they aren't in obvious respiratory distress. For patients with a higher likelihood of inhalation injury or impending airway compromise, consider early intubation if your system allows it. You don't want to find yourself in the dreaded can't-ventilate-can't-intubate situation. So how do you know if a burn victim's airway is at risk? Some common signs and symptoms to watch out for include persistent cough, strider or wheezing, hoarse voice, especially if it seems to be worsening over time, deep facial or circumferential neck burns, inflammation of the nostrils or singed nasal hair, soot or burn matter in the mouth or nose, the presence of blackened sputum or secretions, blistering or swelling of the oropharynx, depressed mental status, even if drugs or alcohol are suspected, and of course, obvious respiratory distress. Another thing to look out for are circumferential burns to the chest. Be sure to remove any clothing that isn't stuck to the patient and perform a complete head-to-toe exam. Even if the face and airway aren't involved, if there's a circumferential burn to the torso, there's significant risk that the chest will become stiff and less able to expand, resulting in decreased tidal volume and respiratory compromise. It's easy to get distracted by the grotesque nature of burn injuries, but there are some important things you need to find out before transporting. Ask what caused the burn and where it took place. It's really important to know if the burn happened outdoors or indoors, especially if it was in a closed space. Someone with a flame burn that occurred in a closed space is at a high risk for carbon monoxide or cyanide poisoning. Be sure to investigate the possibility of trauma, too. Was there an explosion? A car accident? A fall? Don't forget spinal motion restriction. 
Once you've secured the airway and managed any immediate life threats, you'll want to estimate how large the burn is in terms of the percentage of the total body surface area. There are a few different methods for doing this. The most common is the one you probably learned in EMT or paramedic school, the rule of nines. I'm not going to review the percentages in detail here, but I will say that the problem with the rule of nines is that it can be difficult to use when burns are small or patchy. For these types of burns, I like to use the palm method. What you do is look at the patient's palm, including the fingers. That represents 1% of their body surface. Now, compare that to the burns, and you can estimate 1% at a time and add them all up. When it comes to classifying burns, you probably learn to use the degree system, first, second, third, and fourth degree. And while this is still taught, the American Burn Association stopped using the degree system a number of years ago in favor of a system that classifies burns based on how many layers of the skin are affected. Burns are now classified as superficial, partial thickness, or full thickness. But I'll let you in on a little secret. Classifying the depth of the burn shouldn't really be a priority for EMS, since you can't accurately classify a burn during the first 48 hours anyway. What you should know is that superficial burns, what we used to call first degree, don't count when it comes to calculating body surface area or severity. Superficial burns involve only the top layer of skin and look like a typical sunburn without blistering. A superficial burn is also blanchable, meaning that it should turn white when pressed and return to red when released. From now on, when we talk about burns, keep in mind that we're not including superficial burns in the conversation. While it might seem obvious that large or deep burns need to be evaluated at a hospital, there are some other smaller burns that are also serious. A burn that involves the face, eyes, ears, hands, feet, or perineum and has the potential for cosmetic or functional impairment requires hospital evaluation and likely a referral to a burn center. Also, burns involving chemicals, high-voltage electricity, as well as burns that are accompanied by inhalation injury or significant trauma, are also a big deal. After addressing the ABCs, you'll want to perform some basic burn first aid. Start by removing hot or burned clothing, but don't take off anything that's stuck to the skin. Remove any jewelry that's distal to the injury. Burn patients swell, and that ring, watch, or bracelet that you forgot to remove early will turn into a tourniquet pretty quickly. There are also lots of different opinions when it comes to cooling. The point of cooling is to limit the extension of burn injury and reduce pain. My approach is to use cool running tap water and irrigate minor burns for up to five minutes. If the burn was caused by something viscous like grease or tar, irrigate longer. One thing I can't stress enough is to never apply ice or use ice water on a burn. Not only can you cause frostbite, you'll also reduce blood flow to the area. Burned tissue loses its ability to regulate heat, so it's very easy to overcool a burn. The larger the burn, the more careful you need to be. Prevent hypothermia by wrapping your patient in dry sheets or blankets. This is even more critical when caring for children or older adults. Patients with significant burns need IV fluids. The specific guidelines will vary depending on your system, but you should try to establish two large bore IVs of 18 gauge or bigger if possible. Try to do this through unburned skin, but you can place an IV through burned tissue if you have no other choice.
If you're having a hard time getting an IV, don't delay your transport to start one, especially if the transit time is less than an hour. In a pinch, consider establishing I.O. access. The preferred IV solution when caring for burn patients is Ringer's lactate. But a lot of systems only use normal saline, and that's fine. In some places, you'll use the Parkland or modified Parkland formulas to determine how much fluid to give. In others, you might just give a liter bolus. The amount of fluid to administer ultimately depends on your local protocols. Burns are painful, so please don't forget about pain management. Give IV opioids, carefully titrated. Generally, you should avoid IM medication administration when caring for burn patients because fluid resuscitation can alter absorption, making it unpredictable and causing unwanted effects. If permitted, consider a benzodiazepine as well for anxiety. Elevating burned extremities can reduce pain and swelling, and since air movement causes burns to be painful, covering them with non-adherent dry dressings or sheets can also help reduce pain. Don't use wet dressings on burns or apply creams or ointments. Those will only increase the risk of infection. So back to our case. You recognize that placing a burned extremity on ice will only encourage frostbite and reduce necessary blood flow, so you take the patient's hand out of the cooler and pat it dry. He has what appears to be partial and full thickness burns to his arm. Before wrapping the injury in a clean, dry dressing, you use the palm rule to estimate that the burn area is approximately 5% of the patient's total body surface area. You carefully assess his face and airway and don't find any signs that suggest an inhalation injury. You establish an IV, start fluids, administer pain medication, and transport him to the nearest ER. Due to the involvement of his hand, he's transferred to the burn center where he undergoes several months of treatment and rehab. That's it for this week's episode of 911Cast. Join us again next time for another EMS topic. In the meantime, please take a moment to review us on iTunes and help tell other EMS professionals that this podcast is worth their time. Thanks for listening.